Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot. Intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure having you on. I've I've enjoyed the uh, times we've got a chance to to talk over the years, and I can't think of a better person to talk about how you choose the right technology for the right job specifically between ultra wide band and uh and uh bluetooth uh, angle of arrival although for people that want to stay for the second half of the show they'll hear some really interesting stories about how you've got into uh, infrared and ultra wideband which is another set of choices so maybe we'll get onto that later but uh, uh first of all welcome and thanks for coming on thanks for having me what is that interesting array of objects just over your right shoulder <laughs> so I, I, this is um you know we do uh, a ubisense we make uh, um location aware systems for industrial customers and um you know about five percent of the world's cars are built using our technology now uh, and we sell um ultra wideband systems uh we sell um third party location systems including ble uh, AOA systems from other people t- to these manufacturers and and then systems work in terms of software and installation and management that goes with it and as part of that particularly for these customers you have to make sure that it keeps working uh, you know they have extremely high reliability requirements they have you know you're allowed basically zero downtime and it's got to be the right right answer every single time and so a lot of big systems engineering has to go into making that work. So this here is part of our uh, large scale, uh, one of our large scale sensor test rigs, where basically we have about, uh, how many is it gonna be? 50, 60, something like that sensors behind there, um, all working in concert with the cloud server and so on, simulating some of the kind of traffic and traffic patterns that we get in large scale. Uh, industrial systems. So we check it out here before we roll it out to uh, mission critical sites around the world. So is this part of product development or is it part of the QA process for every uh, beacon that you ship? Oh, it's, this, is, this is actually um, more to do with the um, system software side of things. So of course, you oh. know, when we ship sensors or when we ship beacons, uh, we do have QA processes, of course we do. Uh, this is actually more of the um, soft, you know, the system control software and, and uh, application control software. Uh, you know, you have to basically um, simulate large amounts of data, and we do that actually right in the sensors themselves, so that we can simulate all the paths up through the uh, 
the software and to the application layer to make sure it really is going to work as reliably as we think it is. So um, yeah. just something we've learned over the years, you, ha you can't take any chances with this because you know, na nature out there is, is much more cunning than, than you could ever be in terms of uh, you know, doing it. So the, 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 the more you can try it in a, in a representative kind of way, the better your, your system reliability will be. So for those of you that are listening, which may be a large proportion of it, this, this is kind of uh, an array of uh, uh, devices so that are maybe the size of the palm of your hand, roughly. Yeah, it's uh, a paperback, paperback book size, yeah. And so th are those ultra-wideband beacons? No, these are actually the, these are actually ultra-wideband anchors or sensors. So these are the okay. things that are placed uh, around the... Uh, environment and that pick up ultra-wideband signals from from beacons and then and from there you gather the data from those calculate positions but then they go up through further levels of of software so uh, you know you you take uh, computed xyz positions and then those are turned by software into things that businesses really care about so you know nobody nobody actually cares that much about xyz coordinates what they care about is business relevant events so this is in, in industrial environments anyway they, they care about business relevant events like this tool is now working on that car or this car is now in this process space uh, you know those are things that the software then works out and then on top of that you have further layers of software that, that do things so you know when this tool is, is next to this car program it using these particular parameters and that's something in the manufacturing execution system or the the, the control system for the factory. So, you know, to make all of that work and all of that work reliably, we do an, an awful lot of testing uh, to, to check that, that, you know, when we take our software products in, and deploy it in, in factories, that the, the factory is going to keep working and, and it has to. You know, if you stop a, something like a modern car factory, then um, it's something like uh, 300 euros a second is the cost of the downtime. So, you know, it, it's absolutely essential when you deploy these systems that they, they work and they work first time and they keep working for, for years. So, and, and how are those things powered and connected? Uh, the, the anchors, generally they're mm -hmm. connected uh, via power over Ethernet. So, you know, I think um, uh, a lot of, um, you, you know, Pretty much all of the location technologies that people use indoors these days, uh, you know, from a um, from a XYZ um, accurate positioning kind of uh, sense, you know, they tend to have a, a fixed infrastructure. That fixed infrastructure usually has to have power. So it's it's um, you know normally something where you run a power over Ethernet cable to it, and that supplies both the power and the data and um, you know, you can't normally do better than than one one cable running to these things that does both things. Um, yeah. But I think um, you know, in future, that might be something that changes when there are uh, you know there are new technologies coming out like five G that allow you know reliable wireless interconnection of, of of that kind of infrastructure. You won't get rid of that single power cable that's still there. You know, you've got to still provide the power one way or another. But it might be that that power comes over a a bus network, you know, something like AC mains or maybe a, a high voltage DC bus, uh, where it's actually a lot easier and cheaper to put an, a new spur in than it is to, you know, hook up a POE line back to a switch in a switch cabinet and all that kind of jazz.
It, it really is easier. I would have thought PoE would be the easiest because it's not power a power cable. It's a data cable that just yeah, happens yeah. to have a bit of power there. You can't kill anybody with it, right? Um, right. Uh, it, it's yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I think um, the issue isn't one so much of um, physical ease of running it. It's more the cost of maintenance in these factories in terms of making sure that your switches are appropriately provisioned uh, and that the switches are, you know, protected against everything else in the factory and so on. So mains is pretty, um, it's pretty bulletproof, right? You know, you plug yeah. it in and, and there's not a lot of thinking that you have to do when you add a new spur of mains, whereas, you know, network provisioning and network management and so on are something that, that actually have a, a big hidden cost when you go and put those in. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I sort of, I'd always heard that the most expensive thing to do was to pay an electrician to to start <laughs> laying infrastructure. But I guess uh, what you're saying is the uh, the data team actually get paid even better than the electricians. I think uh, that I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so how many of those do you need in a in a factory to track? everything and what are you typically tracking in a car factory presumably cars and bits of cars but well yeah so i mean i think um that the the answer to the how many do you need is a is a little bit of a an open-ended question right it could be you know we have we have factories where there are, there are four of these things or you know three of these things and there was a factory where there's uh, about 1500 of them right mm-hmm. and you know it depends on the area of the factory and the the, the kind of applications that you're looking at and so on. So, um, you know, a good, a good application example is um, the control of tools. So, um, you know, w- one of the things that's really interesting for Ubisense, and I think where we, where we have some experience and expertise, is in using location information to directly control industrial processes. So um, somebody like uh, BMW or Daimler, um, their factory these days is completely different from the factory they had 20 years ago. So when, when Henry Ford came up with his idea of the, the, you know, the, the, the Model T Ford production line, he had this genius idea, mass production, which is you make the same car every single time. And every time you do something at a particular station on this moving assembly line, so the, the cars move past you as they're being assembled, and you as a worker do the same thing every time to every car that goes past. And that was transformational in the way that it um, uh, you know, accelerated the car industry and, and reduced costs. Um, the problem is that every car on that assembly line has to be the same because you don't get the opportunity to chop and change between different options and models and variants and that doesn't sit well with you know today's uh, today's mores which are that that you know i want my car which is different from yeah. everybody else's and so what people like bmw and daimler have done is they've put um, they've made production lines where every single car can be different so you know my car that i want starts being made on the production line and then the one after it will be completely different and the one after that will be completely different as well so we may actually have four or five different models on a production line and we may actually have um you know millions of variants so each car is different and that means that when you do something to a car as it passes you on this moving production line as a worker like use a uh you know a, a high-end screwdriver essentially to to put the airbag in for example you you actually have to set up that tool to do the right thing for the car in front of you 
because if you use the wrong torque or you use the wrong number of turns or something like that, then it can basically damage the, the frame and or maybe, you know, the, the airbag doesn't go in right and essentially, you know, you have a real problem there. So what uh, those customers now do is that they track all of the tools on the assembly line using tracking technology and they track all of the cars on the assembly lines. It moves down the line and they use software to essentially look at the location streams coming in and when a particular tool is being used on a particular car, instantly the control software recognizes that and sets up the tool to do the right thing for that particular car at that particular point on the assembly line. So from the point of view of the worker, they pick up the tool, they use it on a car, and magically it's set up in exactly the right way without them having to do anything. And so um, essentially that's uh, how a, a you know, modern high-end car production facility works. And so to do, to do that, you might have, you know, uh, the biggest factories we've got are, you know, maybe uh, four or 500 meters square. So, you know, sort of, you know, third of a mile on the side and, you know, may use a thousand sensors to, to do that. So it's, um, you know, they're quite big systems and they have to keep working all the time. So you can be working one moment on the, the hood of one car and then turn around and, and you know, fraction of a second later, 200 milliseconds later, you could be working on the tailgate of the next car on the assembly line. And in that time, the system has to have tracked the tool, recognized its move from one car to another, reprogrammed it so that it's now doing the right thing, and, um, you know, done that with, with you know, a, an error rate, which is kind of probably less than one part per million is what's permissible these days. So, wow. you know, it's a very high-end kind of tracking system. And for that, you, you know, we would typically use... Uh, ultra wideband location because of the high tracking reliability that's necessary uh, you know it's, it's um, and the high tracking accuracy that's required in, in what's quite a challenging environment with a, a lot of metal and reflections but obviously that's that's the right technology the right sensor for that particular job and it might be complete overkill for a different kind of um, uh, location tracking challenge uh, or, I do this is not enough. I mean, you know, there, there are other technologies which are even more accurate than ultra wideband. So you you always have to choose the right thing for the right job. Yeah, it's a toolkit, uh, and there's always pros, cons, uh, cost, and infrastructure, and uh, battery yeah. life, and uh, 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 robustness, and all these other things. So, um, how accurate do you need to be to? know the difference between the end of uh, the, the back end of one car and the front end of the one that's coming quickly uh, behind it? No, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, they're, they're separated by about half a meter on the production. Oh, right. so, so, you know, at some level, you have to be kind of, you know, accurate to that kind of level. Um, the, the biggest challenge, actually, is not so much the... Um, you know, instantaneous accuracy in a, in a nice, clean environment. It's actually dealing with the fact that, um, you know, as you're doing this, the, the tools are sometimes used in the wheel wells or, you know, under the car or in oh. environments that are, you know, not not ideal at all for propagation. You know, I think, I think people have a, you know, their mobile phones give them a, a false sense of security about how radio signals propagate around the, the environment, you know, that... that you know, they don't ever really see the fact that, um, uh, you know, radio signals are blocked by all sorts of things. People, I mean, I, you know, people are fantastic radio absorbers, 
wet, salty, you know, bodies are fantastic at just soaking up radio waves, as are bits of car, you know, metal, metal parts of car or metal parts of uh, production transport systems or something like that. So uh, in those environments, you know, it, it actually you very rarely get really good propagation from beacons on tools or on cars into infrastructure that you place around the around the, the production line. You know, you're always being challenged by reflections and obstructions and so on. So even if even if your technology works at 50 centimeters in a nice clean environment, the question is more: what's the level of reliability and robustness you get when you're you're dumped into a, a hellish environment uh, and is it good enough to do it there with the levels of reliability that then people need and um you know it, it's a it's a challenging problem so but presumably even ultra wideband uh is not gonna propagate through sheet metal or uh or someone's body uh, is it no no you're right and and i think that the um you know the the, the the important, the important thing there is that, that actually um, you, you have to put up enough infrastructure that at some point you have, a, you know, a few near lines of sight, right? So, you know, if you go from line of sight to near line of sight, your accuracy of your system degrades. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. kind of just going to, right? Uh, if you go from near line of sight to no line of sight or blocked, you know, then, you know, things get a lot worse, a lot, a lot more quickly. So, um, you know, a lot of these car production lines have to have enough sensors that you're getting the, the basic number of line of sight or near line of sight paths, even in those, you know, really challenging kind of uh, situations. And then it's down to, to how much information do you squeeze out of every line of sight or near line of sight path that you're getting. So if you're, um, you know, and this comes back down to location system architecture, really, right? So if, you, if your location system is a, a pure TDOA location system, you'll need four. So that's time difference of, of arrival, right? Time difference of arrival, sorry, yes. Uh, yeah. So if you've got a pure time difference of arrival system, like uh, GPSs or like, uh, you know, there are many radio time difference arrival systems, then essentially you need four of those pretty clean or nearly clean paths to get your 3D location with any accuracy. If you, if you do two-way ranging, so that's normally called TOA or time of arrival, where you're sending a signal out from a tag to a, an anchor and it comes back again and you measure the, the two-way trip, uh, you might need three, right? So that's kind of a bit better and a bit more robust in those really challenging circumstances. Mm -hmm. If you use AOA, actually you only need two. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's an even more robust technology. And we actually use a combination of AOA plus TDOA. Um, so that actually gives us a lot of information from any path that happens to kind of make it through the, the, maze, of, um, the, uh, the maze of obstructions that you're placed around. Now that's interesting. So you're, and, and I always call these, if, if, if it's on an asset that's moving around, I tend to call it a tag and I try and yeah. call beacons of things that don't move. But, but the, the, the complicated thing is that tags tend to use beaconing radio protocols, which just really confuses everyone. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's get back to the point that this, uh, mixing of, uh, AOA and, um, uh, time of arrival. So you, um, so you're using both, um, and ultra wideband 
with ultra wideband is that the uh the the time of arrival uh that your time difference well, of arrival actually, we, or time measure, of arrival we me- the ultra wideband does both so you can measure a, an AOA on a ultra wideband signal in the same way that you do on say a, a BLE okay. signal right so that, right. that part of it's very very similar um it's a bit easier because of the shorter signals to measure that TDOA on a ultra wideband signal than on a a BLE signal. So, you know, we, we have the opportunity with ultra wideband to do both of those techniques at the same time. And they, they complement each other quite well. But essentially what you're trying to do is, is you know, you've got a direct path, uh, squeeze as much information out of it as you possibly can, because you may not get many more of them, right? So, so from a robustness point of view, it's a, it's a very robust technology, but it's probably, you know, it is, it is a bit more expensive than BLE. So, you know, if you look at the kind of applications that you have in car plants, then um, BLE might be a great application for logistics store areas or something like that, where, you know, you, you, either you don't need quite the accuracy, in, you know, or the quite the robustness at the same time, it might be a great application for those. Whereas somewhere on the production line, you know, it's a, a, a very nasty um, uh, radio environment and, and one needs to to, to, to squeeze out as much information as possible with the, the highest bandwidth signal. So, you know, in my view, when we put together location systems, it's always horses for courses. You know, you, you use the, the best technology uh, for the particular problem that you're looking at. And, you know, I, I, although we make ultra-wideband sensors, you know, the, there are applications where ultra-wideband just isn't good enough. So, um, you know, we, we work with car manufacturers who want to do what's called bolt level accuracy, where you, uh, you know, if you, if, let's say you've got um, a good example is a helicopter, is, a, is, the, is the, uh, the rotor blade assembly for a helicopter. You have lots and lots of bolts and they have to be um, bolted down in precisely the right sequence. You know, you kind of imagine changing the wheel on your car, the tire on your car. You know, you're supposed to kind of... Uh, tighten the bolts on the on the wheel uh, in a kind of uh, you know if you if you tighten the one here first then you go across the wheel to the next one mm-hmm. and back to the next one and so on. there's a particular way in which it's you know mm-hmm. you, the best way of doing it well for a helicopter um, plate assembly it's like that but there's 50 bolts and you know the consequences of getting it wrong are really bad and and all of those bolts look alike so there you need to basically be able to tell within a couple of centimeters where the tool head is as you're assembling this thing to make sure that the assembly process has happened exactly right. And that's beyond um, BLE or ultra wideband. In fact, probably the only way of doing it is optical. So, you know, for those kind of applications, you know, we, we, um, we suggest optical techniques because it's the only way of really being sure about, about what you're doing. So there's a continuum of, of location technologies, each of which is applicable to different industrial kind of um, uh, applications. And and the optical is that machine vision or is it visual light communication where you're what what, what um, are well, you we using? With a, yeah, it's a good question. We, we work with a company called ART out of Germany, and ART have built a a tool mounted camera. So it's kind of like a a little camera that looks directly at where the tool is is being used on the assembly, and it looks at the area around the bolt to um, to figure out, you know, what what which bolt you're looking at. So um, they actually originally did it for things like engine assembly in in car production lines, right? Because 
uh, you know, um, if you imagine kind of trying to work on a, a uh, an engine, deep in an engine that's in the kind of engine bay of a car, and there's a, a you know a metal hood above you, you know, it's a really awful scenario for anything that's kind of outside the car trying to detect signals that are coming from a beacon or something like that in. You know, you can't mm -hmm. look into the car, you can't get any signals out. The best you can do is actually look at what's happening inside the bonnet or inside, inside the hood of the car, you know, with, the, with a tool uh, that's got a little camera on it. And the, the, the camera can see the area around the, uh, the bolt and it can see exactly where you are with respect to other bolts and so on. And actually, with a bit of machine learning and um, uh, you know um, uh, AI, they can tell exactly which bolt it is that you're looking at. And so you can then end up with some quite interesting combinations of technologies because this ART vision-based technology is quite capable of telling you within a, an engine uh, block, you know, which, which individual bolt it, it's looking at. But one thing it doesn't know is which car you're looking at. So every car, the engine block looks identical to the mm -hmm. ART system, but you can combine that with the tracking from ultra wideband or with uh, you know BLE or something like that. You know, on a production line, we, we combine it with ultra wideband because the ultra wideband knows exactly which car the tool is working on right now. And the ART vision system knows exactly which bolt on some car it's, it's working on right now. And if you combine those two things, you can essentially work out exactly which bolt you're working on on any car in the factory down to the individual bolt. And so you can do quality control processes and understand exactly what's happening at a much, much deeper level than you were ever possible, uh, ever able to do before. But that's only possible because you're using a combination of uh, different technologies, each of which have some strengths and some weaknesses. But if you combine them in the right way, you can get a combination that's strong in both, both regards. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I guess the machine vision uh, product is not going to have the kind of the serialization. You have a like a Bluetooth tag on, a, on an asset, then that can be indexing into some unique ID. And that's kind of another limitation. Because uh, uh, I think, you know, for those people with the competitive mindset, the question is, well, what's the best technology? And of course, the answer is, well, <laughs> is a hammer better than a saw? No, it's, it's like different uh, things for different yeah. uh, jobs. Any other limitations of that machine vision that you see that, that preclude it from being used for everything? 
Well, I mean, I think it's it, it is it is down to the the identification, right? It's it's not great at identification. I mean, you can yes. always arrange for it to be good at you know put a big barcode on something, and maybe that's yeah. a, a good thing. Um, you know, but the uh, you know it's it it really genuinely is a line of sight technology, right? So yes. that's not always uh, ideal, uh, and. You know, any radio technology that you will get some diffraction around things and, you know, you'll get some penetration through certain materials. So um, it's in my in my experience, optical technologies are a bit um, harder, you know, both in terms of difficulty and also in terms of, um, you know, being black or white. Right. It's like either it works or it doesn't. Right. Whereas radio technologies are softer. They they degrade and they may degrade quickly but it's not a complete kind of instantaneous cutoff so that you know i think um, machine vision is going to be an interesting technology and people are going to do some you know i've seen fantastic um performance from things like slam and so on where people are now tracking forklifts where essentially you put cameras on the forklifts and you drive the forklift around and it's sensing um you know everything as it goes past and 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 you can see um uh, exactly where you are and you can map it out at the same time so slam technologies that people are already using things like the oculus headsets and so on you know at a bigger scale are being used all over industry and i'm pretty sure that there's going to be a lot of consumer drone devices and that kind of stuff where that 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 stuff is you know going to be very mainstream in the next uh, next few years robot vacuum cleaners that kind of stuff so remind me what slam stands for simultaneous localization and mapping so um the idea is that if you've got uh, cameras on a device that are looking out then um you know you, you can use that combined with inertial technologies to essentially do what we do as people you know we 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 know where we are in buildings and we, the way that we do that is by looking at where we are and combining that with the information that's coming from our ears and you know we build up a map of exactly where we are and what's around us and how we're moving through the space and that's what slam does in a in a uh, computing way and, and i think that that's something that that has really taken off in the last uh you know 10 10 years i'd say um you know the technologies to do that have become widely available um you know what one of the things actually that sort of bit of an aside this but one of the um uh uh, when, when I was doing my PhD in location tracking technologies, there was one paper that was just completely on another plane that that I came across. And it was from a guy called Gary Bishop at the University of North Carolina, who was, a, you know, I, I, I met him once, bona fide genius, I'm sure of it. But he built, he, he wrote a paper in about 1982, I think it was, about a thing called a self-tracker, which was a cube of cameras, you know, each looking in different directions, and it had a, a, some accelerometers. And this guy was basically 30 years ahead of his time, right? So you probably couldn't have built it in, in 1980, or maybe the military did and never told anybody. But, um, you know, now it, it, it's reality, and, and, and that's an interesting technology for the future. Well, I love your... Uh, uh metaphor or, or, or tie back to human beings and, and what we do. But of course, human beings uh, augment our visual senses with location technology on phones, don't we? We can see where we are. We roughly recognize we're uh, in the middle of uh, the Yorkshire Dales, but we don't know exactly where in the Yorkshire Dales we are. So we use GPS and all that sort of stuff on our phones. 
Um, so I want to just, uh, you know, this is fascinating comparing the different uh, technologies that are in the toolbox. Just going back to the AOA piece, because we kind of build mm. this as mainly comparing Bluetooth and ultra wideband, but it's so much more. Um, do, do those uh, anchors that you have um, over your shoulder, that I, I was trying, yes, it's like a paperback. It's sort of like the old Michelin guide because they're a bit thicker than your average yeah, sure. uh, <laughs> spy thriller that you might buy at WH Smith's um, bookstore in England. Uh, so do those have AOA? Do those have multiple antennas? Or is that something else that you need in order to do AOA? No, no. So, that, so inside those is a kind of... Um, an array of antennas and that's how we you know we look at the very very slight time differences of arrival of the signal or the phase of the signal at each of those antennas and that's what allows us to get um, uh, a, a, a two-axis elevation and azimuth um, uh, AOA and so at the same time we can also tell exactly when the signal kind of came in and that gives us the, the TDOA or the timing for the TDOA too. So, um, you know, yeah, they're kind of about the size of a book. I mean, you know, obviously our, our focus is in industrial applications and, you know, these are by no means the, 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 the ugliest thing in the factory. So, uh, you know, I think no. the, size is, the size is perfectly acceptable for that kind of thing. It's the, it's the tags that have to be small. You know, you have to, you have to make uh, small tags that are, um, uh, you know, have long battery lifetimes. Um, and, you know, particularly for industrial applications, it's got to be pretty hands-off because you don't get the opportunity to recharge everything in the same way that you do with you know many consumer applications so you know every, every night we're, we're all programmed now to plug our phone in to get recharged right and so a battery lifetime of a day or two is the sweet spot for for a phone but for a tag that's used in industry and, and this is true of bluetooth as well as as UDB, you know the sweet spot is probably about five years if you can make something last for five years, then the likelihood is that the process in the factory will have changed on that kind of time scale. And so, you, you know, that, that's kind of what they're looking for, I think. So in, in trying to position the different technologies, I've always thought of UWB as having more power consumption at the tag level, less battery life. Are you saying that that's changed, that it's at parity with uh, BLE now? Um, it depends. I, I'm not sure that all ultra wide band is the same. In fact, I know it isn't the same, right? So, so our the technology that we use, which is um, short pulse uh, and um, low pulse repetition rate, is on a par with uh, uh, BLE. In fact, we we actually just launched a a tag, um, uh, which is a dual um, ultra wide band and BLE tag so it does both of them and and has a you know the same you know the same sort of battery lifetime as a pure ble tag or a pure uh uwb tag there are other tech there are other kinds of ultra wideband which are higher power um where they use many many more pulses and you know they've got a lot more circuitry running really at really high rates but but you know i i personally don't like those so much for um uh, industrial applications because they're just a lot higher power. So, so I think that the, the BLE approach and the approach we take is probably right for industrial applications because you need to have something that that doesn't require a lot of maintenance, even if you're, you know, driving it quite hard. And what about the time dimension here? Because that's yet another factor. So, how often do I need to know 
changes in location? Does uh, do the two technologies bench out the same as well? If I want to be broadcasting uh, twenty times a second or something like that? Yeah, yeah, I think that they're Ten very times. similar. I mean, the yeah. it, the, the ultra wideband stuff is is uh, ultra wideband again is probably has probably the edge there because. Um, it's possible even to transmit two packets simultaneously and have them miss because the pulses in each are so short that, that as long as they as long as they don't actually the pulses don't actually overlap, which is incredibly unlikely, you can actually transmit and receive uh, multiple packets in you know that, that completely overlap, which is harder to do with a technology like BLE. But um, again, I, you know, I think um, I think the fact that both of them kind of score equally on on the kind of or you know similarly. On the on the things the metrics that you're talking about is really a reflection of the fact that you know companies like Ubisense and and so on you know have, have kind of optimized their technologies to meet a particular market segment. So you know mm. we've optimized it because we know that really if we don't get five back, five years battery lifetime, then you know industrial manufacturers are not going to be that interested in it, and that's true for BLE vendors as well. So um, you know what's the What's the things that where we we Ubisense don't do so so much on you know because we've made that trade off? Well, you know, for us, um, you know, our tags don't transmit megabytes of data a second. It's just mm-hmm. not an interesting thing for the customers that we do. So our ultra wideband is optimized towards um, you know long battery lifetime, uh, uh, many many tags in the same space, low tag cost, all that kind of stuff. But it isn't a data. It's not a general purpose data link. Right? It's just not. not what it's so got. your tags aren't sensing. They're just uh, tagging a location, or. Um, well, they, they sense they sense things like movement and they sense things like temperature and so on. But they're not. Um, yeah, a good example would be something I think like a like the tools that we use in assembly operations or our customers use in assembly operations. You know, every time you do a an assembly operation on a car. Um, not only do you tell the tool what to do, but the tool actually records all of the torque data that's, that it's uh, measuring as it does the, the, the screwdriver operation. Because you can tell when you've got a strip thread or when you've got a, a, a nut that's not down correctly. And it ships all of that back. And that might be, yes. I don't know, 10, 50, 100K bytes of data. And so there are applications where you might want to um, ship that kind of amount of data back, but our view would be that's not really the location systems job. You know, that's something where the tool probably has its own Wi-Fi or 5G or or whatever data link, and that's the appropriate way of getting that data back again. So, Andy, would you say that you're a musical person or or, or not? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'd say I'd say I, I, I like my music absolutely. Yes. Excellent. I don't, I don't yeah. generate a lot myself, but I like listening to it. So <laughs> I'm the same. I'm the same. I uh, I know my limitations. Uh, so uh, if you had to choose three songs that had some meaning to you, um, what would they be? Um, so I think the first one would be uh, "Wuthering Heights" by Kate Bush, and that, it's just because it's a classic. It's a classic for sure. But it's it's. It's the first thing I really remember from pop culture because I think a lot of people have the, 
you know, the story about hiding behind the sofa when Doctor Who is on because there's some scary monster. Well, the first thing I remember from pop culture is hiding behind the sofa because Kate Bush was on singing Wuthering Heights because I don't know whether you've ever seen the video, but it's a, a pretty ethereal kind of far out video. And uh, yeah, as a five-year-old, that terrified me. <laughs> but it's a great song and, I, you know, obviously I've come to appreciate it. So. Tremendous. It brings back loads of memories for me as well. And if anyone hasn't seen it, they they should. And at the time, it was just completely different to anything else that <laughs> anyone had ever seen, I think. Uh, what an amazing artist she, uh, she is. Okay, fantastic. Great choice. Uh, number two. Uh, so number two would be, uh, um, I think, The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Because for me, it's... Um, I mean, I could pick almost anything they did, but, uh, you know, that's something that takes me back to, to driving long distances in the, you know, in a, in a car with my parents because they had that, that tape on and we'd listen to it all the time. But uh, again, it's funny how, you know, sound and, uh, you know, those kind of things can, can bring you back to a certain place. So that's definitely, a, you know, driving from one end of England to another kind of uh, and what, what, where would you drive uh, what are these drives are it drives on holiday or uh... oh yeah just to see uh, just to see grandparents and that kind of thing so you know yeah. but uh, uh, you know all, all those kind of things but the sound of silence is uh, is the one that I kind of always remember it's slightly haunting again it's a bit like that Kate Bush one right? <laughs> yeah yeah very good. Yeah, I, I mean, Paul Simon's music really endures. I, I every, it seems like every time I go online, you you can call me Al is like at the top of my <laughs> YouTube uh, recommendations, and it actually stands up. Great. And uh, number three, and number three would be uh, "Superstition" by Stevie Wonder. Oh. Um, so uh, uh, you know, again, it's it's all kind of tied to. A, a place for me. I, I want, in my spare time, I do paragliding. And um, there was a, a trip I went on to Morocco where the next day I was planning to do a certain maneuver where you collapse your parachute and, uh, you know, just as a practice emergency drills kind of thing. So there was a little bit of me which was like apprehensive about doing this. And so I couldn't really sleep. Um, but the rest of the group decided that they were going to party all night. And somebody in that group decided they were going to stick superstition on, on repeat. So I was like, I, I was obviously not getting a lot of sleep anyway. And after that, all I could hear was every single note in superstition. But fortunately, it's a good song. It's a great song. Stevie Wonder's the best. So, you know, it's a fantastic song. I'd rather have that as the thing stuck in my head in that circumstance than anything else. So is the paragliding the one where you run down the hill with a rectangular uh, parachute and you glide around, or, or different? Uh, it's yeah, yeah, it's that. It's, I mean, they're kind of uh, they they're they're pretty sleek now. They're kind of um, crescent shaped kind of things, and yeah, you 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 sort of run down the hill for a bit and then off, and you know you're with the birds. So. Oh yeah, they do that here in San Diego uh, in La Jolla, and it's spectacular. Yeah. You go over. Um, uh, Tory Pines golf course and people are chipping shots underneath your toes <laughs> and and I, I'm I'm terrified of heights but I did it for my 50th um, and I'm like oh this isn't scary at all it's wonderful and then the next weekend there was news that someone died doing it they 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 hit a cliff or something down there so it's dangerous uh, it is you know it's a it's a thing where you have to um... You know, it's like any form of aviation. You have to treat the, treat it seriously, right? Because it's, uh, it, you know, it's not your natural environment. You've always got to remember that. 
So I was wondering whether you'd have any music that conjured up your days in Cambridge, because having been <laughs> an alumnus of Hatfield Polytechnic, I always sort of looked at that, and 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 I had a girlfriend whose whose dad went to um, Cambridge, so we used to kind of occasionally go to these black tie dinners, and there was a lot of really good wine and food that was served. Was that was that a lot of fun? Um, was there any music associated with that, or was it just uh, well, you know, uh, intense intellectual cool activities, <laughs> a cerebral time in your life? Uh, yeah, there have been a cerebral time. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think um, uh, you know. The sort of more classical things, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of choral music in Cambridge, you know, because it's obviously based around the colleges and the colleges are essentially based around the church. And so, you know, it probably has more churches per square metre than anywhere in the world. So there's a lot of choral music. Um, and, uh, you know, it always comes into its own at Christmas, right? Because then uh, they do a lot of, uh, you know, choral music for Christmas and so on and you know that's always a nice it's always a nice place to to be there and there's always a lot of that uh, that kind of stuff so yeah if I was going to pick one I'd say The Shepherd's Farewell by Berlioz if you've never heard that it's a beautiful piece of music. All right I was uh, reading a book by David Byrne of The Talking Heads and it's fascinating it's about like lots of different things it's a biography it's a treatise on a theory he has on music, and it's also a guide to the music business. And the theory he has on the music, uh, on music, is that the sound is a function of the place. And so, you know, you can never have rock music in a cathedral; it would just drive you crazy. All the echoes, but the choral music is specifically tuned to the the the, the echoes and 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 kind of surviving that. Whereas. Talking Heads and Blondie was the perfect music for CBGBs, <laughs> where the kind of tiny right. space, lots of noise, have to kind of uh, get over the uh, bar orders. Anyway, that's by way of nothing, but uh, you just uh, kind of clued me into that. So, what was what was it like going to Cambridge? Because you did, uh, um, I, I never quite understand what these things mean. But you got a, a master's, which I think is what everyone gets. But you did a PhD there as well. Yeah, I did my undergraduate degrees in Cambridge. And um, as part of that, I actually uh, was fortunate enough to work with a, a research lab called ORL, which was sponsored by Olivetti. It was a uh, you know, kind of slightly peculiar thing in, in its time. But I guess now it would be kind of viewed as an incubator. I mean, that's kind of what it was. It was a, a way of nurturing startup companies uh, generating some papers and some publicity for Olivetti at the same time. And they had a thing called the uh, Active Badge. So I don't know whether you've done a, a uh, I don't know whether you've done a, uh, a show on the, the prehistory of, uh, of beacons, but um, the Active Badge was a thing that they built in about 19, I'm going to say 1988, something like that. And it was an infrared location system. So it was a little tag that you took around with you and it, transmitted ultra, uh, infrared to a network of sensors that were around the building and it could tell you which room in the building you were in so it was a kind of room scale location system and then there are still systems like that today but as an undergraduate I actually got access to this um, uh, and used it for my project so I kind of got into this idea of well you know you could you put a map up and you can show where people are on the map and that's um, and that's all good um, you know, that, that sounds interesting. And so when I had finished my undergraduate degree and I worked in industry for a bit, 
I went back and did a PhD on on that kind of... Well, Andy, I could talk to you all day. This has been fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope people stay on and listen a bit more to hear a bit about the genesis of uh, your company and how you got into this space. But thanks so much for giving us this uh, uh, incredible, fascinating guide of the, 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 the different uh, technologies that are out there to help uh, people with RTLS. Thanks for the opportunity in the, in the building. But if you want to control systems and actually make them do something useful and different. So, you know, I walk up to a computer and instantly it's my computer and all my stuff appears on that computer and so on. Um, you know, you need a bit better accuracy than that. So I was basically set during my PhD. I, I was looking at what technologies could we use indoors to, to do finer grain location. And if we had that data, how would you process it efficiently uh, to and scalably to make um, uh, sensor-driven systems work? So that was the, the kind of thing that I did for the next three years. And I built a, a very big um, ultrasonic location system. So it was actually something that was, uh, you know, had a kind of ultrasonic receiver every two meters all the way across this, this building. Uh, but it was, and it had tags that you carried around with you, a bit like beacons today. And, you know, they had multi-year battery lifetimes and you could have, you know, hundreds in a, in a building and so on. And it was phenomenally accurate. It was really great. You could use the tag as a, a mouse on a, uh, you know, on a computer screen. Um, you could uh, really? find exactly where you were to within probably two or three centimeters in 3D. So it was an amazingly accurate system. But it had this downside, which was it was really expensive because you had so many of these ultrasonic receivers in the ceiling. So, I, you know, we, we, we deployed that in a thousand meter square building. You know, it's a reasonable sized building with 50 people in it. And, um, and that's, that's basically the, uh, you know, the size of that technology. But it was, it was very interesting to see what you could do with it if you had that kind of data. So how many receivers would you need in a, in a building like that, roughly? Oh, it was something like three or 400. I mean, it was a lot, right? It was a lot of yeah. cabling. It was a lot of uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, in that kind of research environment, it didn't really matter. It was, a, it was more of a proof of principle. You know, if you had this data, what could you do with it? And we built systems around that that, that did, you know, some pretty interesting stuff. So, um, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the active badge work and the ultrasonic thing that we did afterwards was that we, we didn't just do asset finding, right? You know, the, I think there's a lot of discussion about beacons and so on, and it always starts with asset finding. And that's a fine application, right? There's, there's a great thing for that. But, but uh, you could do so much more with it. You know, this entire, again, it sounds a bit crazy now because the world has moved on in a different way. But um, one of the most amazing things that they did at the time was because nobody had mobile phones, the um, the receptionist didn't have to forward calls to you. You know, the system was already hooked up into the PABX, and so when the call came in, it found you know who it was for. It automatically worked out where they were in the building, and you knew that if the phone next to you rang, it was for you. So you didn't have a mobile phone or anything, but the phone rang, pick it up. Yeah, hey, you know, it was exactly your call. And then you could you could do you know really interesting things. There were a lot of people at uh, Xerox who had this system as well, and um, there was a guy there called Mick Lamming who was a real uh, pioneer in this stuff. And he built a thing called Forget Me Not, and Forget Me Not was a uh, an automatic diary. So basically, what it did is it recorded exactly where you were, 
exactly who was with you, um, you know, where they went and, and, and how, how the meetings happened and so on. And the idea was that essentially you could then um, uh, go back and look at what happened last Tuesday. And, you know, just as a sort of aid memoir as to what on earth happened uh, last week. Now, then we took that and added in integration with the new diaries and with, you know, other IT systems and so on, pulling it together. So essentially you ended up with a timeline of exactly what happened to you every day. Where did you meet people? What were the photographs that you took when you did that? Uh, what documents did you look? You know, who was there next to you at the printer last week? You know, when you were chatting over something, you know, it was quite an interesting uh, thing. And we, we thought at the time that maybe smart offices were the way that this was going to get used. Um, and that, you know, in the future, uh, you'd have a whole load of shared stuff around your office and it would be kind of orchestrated, choreographed by tracking where people were and who was interacting with it and so on. So that was the, the kind of idea at the time. It's brilliant. And, and you'd think that now with the smartphone, a uh, forget-me-not-like concept could really come into its own because the integration points, if, if Apple or Google got into it, I wonder why not. Maybe it's a privacy thing. I think it might be a privacy thing because, you know, it, you, you, you do have to go into it kind of thinking, well, I'm part of this big hole and, um, uh, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to benefit from is, is the information shared within that organization and pulled together in a, in a, in a timeline that, that uh, you know, is relevant to me. Um, and, you know, I think actually the, the, the kind of MO of the mobile phone is that everything's on here and it's all yours and you keep it to yourself. And mm. that's a slightly different kind of mindset from the slightly more expansive, well, you know, let's put it all in the pot and see what comes out uh, mindset. Uh I love the phone, uh, the phone ringing next to you. It's like one of those spy movies where, you know, the CIA knows exactly where you are and the president wants to speak to you. And so the phone just rings or probably it's normally someone behind the president who's even more powerful <laughs> that does that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think actually, although smart offices is not where it's ended up, um, the same concepts are being used with location driven services today in industry, but we'll, we'll probably get onto that later. So. Yeah, yeah, very good. So, how did uh, how how did that lead to being a co-founder of Ubisense? How did you do that, and how do you get to be a chief technology officer? <laughs> um, well, the, I mean the the the, um, the kind of uh, let's say the mo at this lab was was really one of of. Um, exploration and um you know uh, trying to see whether there were ways in which you could generate interesting technology that had commercial value so although um you know the sponsors and the sponsors of the lab over the years were olivetti and then oracle and then at&t um although those were the sponsors of the lab they probably weren't going to directly um use the technology themselves but they did fund it because they got some publicity out of it and they funded it because, you know, the lab had a good history of spinning out companies that took uh, technology that was developed there and commercializing it. And, you know, obviously, as part of the uh, genesis of these companies, that funding organization will get a slice as well. So mm. um, you know, this, this lab had probably uh, four or five kind of spin outs. And as I say, nowadays, I think it would be viewed as being a, 
a sort of incubator accelerator kind of place. Mm. Um, but back at the time, it was it was very different from anywhere else. And um, so, uh, you know, we always had an eye as we were doing this location-aware work that, um, you know, maybe there would be something commercially in it. And as we got more publicity, we were getting probably two or three commercial inquiries a day by the end from people who had seen what we were doing and, you know, seen the publicity about it and so on and wanted to use it from, you know, everything from uh, military training through to entertainment, uh, through to, um, you know, smart offices, agriculture. I mean, there was a real kind of smorgasbord of kind of different things. Nothing at that stage where you could say, you know what, that's a fantastic opportunity. It keeps coming up and up and up. But people were, you know, seeing how they could use that technology and, and, and go with it. The, the best one I ever got is I got an inquiry from a guy in Transylvania who had a graveyard that he wanted to survey. And it was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to pick up on that, but for real, there was a, an absolute re- genuine inquiry, this surveying the graveyard. But uh, anyway, so we, we had this kind of eye on, on commercialization, but unfortunately with the, the dot-com bust, um, we, uh, uh, the lab shut before we got a chance to, you know, go out and, and, and start up a company. So together with my other co-founders from the lab, um, we, uh, uh, we found that basically we were, we were on the dole, unemployed. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, when, you, when you're on, unemployed, you don't have a lot to lose by hawking around and seeing whether somebody will fund you to start a company. And so that's exactly what we did. So we took the ideas, I mean, there's some of the, the general concepts and, um, you know, some new ideas we had about technology and so on and uh, looked to see whether we could we could start a company and that became Ubisense in 2002. So, so you really have uh, looked across um, uh, infrared, uh, um, ultrasonic, uh, ultra-wideband and now, and now Bluetooth. Uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, quite a... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Board of I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got a chest at home like a big kind of chest full of papers about every single location technology you can think of so um you know when we when i did my phd i did an awful lot of research into the different ways you can actually do it and you know some of those have been kind of you know superseded now by newer techniques but a lot of it is um is quite old um concepts i mean um the, the reason I kind of another reason I got into this is because um, I picked up a book off my dad's sh- bookshelf once, which was called um, Most Secret War. It's by a guy called R.V. Jones. And if you've never read it, it's a fantastic book. But he was in charge of scientific intelligence in the UK during the Second World War. And of course, the, you know, there was a lot of to and fro in terms of uh, intelligence gathering and exploitation and, and so on. Um, in terms of radio between Germany and, and, and Britain. And so both sides, you know, advanced a lot of things. But many of the techniques that we now use for location were kind of basically first thought of in the Second World War. And so that book is, you know, absolute is a goldmine of, of how-tos uh, that basically people came up with then for, for essentially fighting electronic wars. So. Huh. It is interesting. I mean, how much innovation came out of this war environment? I mean, we generally think of innovation 
people need to be in a play space. It's like all uh, <laughs> no uh, nothing, no wrong answers, and that sort of thing. But the flip side is you face you know extermination, and you get pretty creative as well. That's another approach to it. I, I look at like. Uh, uh, Israel, where Williot has a lot of its uh, R&D, and uh, that nation's incredibly creative, but it's surrounded by uh, countries that maybe don't have the best of feelings <laughs> towards it. And right. It's uh, really interesting. Very good. Yeah. Well, um, thanks very much, Andy. That's been, uh, that's been fascinating. So uh, appreciate the, uh, the, the background, appreciate the music, and uh, I, I, I learned a lot. And this was supposed to be the fun bit. <laughs> I want to thank Aaron Hammock for his work on uh, production, uh, Jesse Hazelrig, our uh, producer. I want to thank you for, for listening. Please do like us, tell your friends about us, and please join us for the next time we meet up. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.